0: Only from Rustolium. I'm Afua Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra, an iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.
1: During the anarchy of the British Civil War in the 1640s, one individual set about trying to restore a degree of order his methods would reap a harvest of pain. He was Matthew Hopkins, who gave himself the grandiose title Witchfinder General, and set himself a grandiose task to purge England of witches. His obsession would drive the most brutal witch hunt in English history. But where did it come from, this obsession of his? What shaped this man to adopt this monstrous role and to imagine that by doing so, he was carrying out God's work. A new play by Joanna Carrick called The Ungodly, now performing at Avenue Theatre in Ipswich, explores these very questions. Joanna Carrick is artistic director and founder of Red Rose Chain, a not-for-profit theatre company that delivers a vibrant programme of plays and centres inclusion and accessibility. Jo's also a playwright. One of her previous plays, Fallen in Love, Explores the relationship between Anne Boleyn and her brother George. I saw it in Ipswich and again during its run at the Tower of London, and it's touring in 2024, so do look out for it. But today we're talking about another one of Joe's historically plausible and dramatically riveting plays The Ungodly and the emergence of witch hunter Matthew Hopkins. And please note, there will be references to baby mortality in our discussion. The Ungodly is performing at the Avenue Theatre in Ipswich until the 11th of November. Get there if you can.
2: Joanna Carrick, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm so glad to be here, Susanna. It's great. Thank you. I'm a long time fan of your work and your new play, The Ungodly, is wonderful. It's a very sensitively wrought and moving work. I don't know how you did it really, very concisely over, I guess, what must be 90 minutes, you evoke the past with this very fine historical sensibility and also, above all, bring to it a sense of humanity. And I've thought much before about the history of witchcraft accusations and particularly the specific cases in East Anglia, Manningtree, that are part of this story. And yet, your creative response to the history made me think again about certain things. What drew you to this choice of topic? It's
3: a local story. I know it's Globally important, but it is our story. And I work a lot with community participants as well as professional actors. And we've got a real hub here of people who are fascinated by history with all sorts of different abilities. So we have lots of learning disabled actors who work here who just are on fire with historical subjects. And so it was a natural progression. I've done lots of 16th century stories local to the area and it was a kind of a natural progression to look at the witchfinder and to kind of reclaim that story for us i think so as well as writing my own play we've also done a lot of community projects around that history and I suppose, around the theme of people who feel disenfranchised within society. And there's been a lot of crossover with some of our participants in that story and them identifying with the victims and identifying with the prejudice that was behind what happened. So that's been a really exciting wider process for me. But then for me personally, wanting to write this play, I think it's that thing of, Holding out your hand to the past and seeing if you can connect with those people and empathize with them rather than saying, oh, what a dreadful thing that was that would never happen today about looking at our flaws as human beings and not about baddies and evil people, but how ordinary kind of decent people could get drawn into something because it was a whole community response rather than just Matthew Hopkins. So that's kind of what I wanted to really look at.
2: Yes, I definitely want to ask you a few more questions to think about those themes. But first, may I ask you, especially if you're working with the community and as well as professional actors, how did you set about kind of finding the right tone for the dialogue? When you're writing something that's set in the 16th or 17th century, it must be a great temptation to fall into kind of cod English. So how do you do something that conveys that kind of historical sensibility but also keeps your modern audience engaged?
3: Yes, I don't want to put a barrier up between the audience and the action by making it sound very alien to us. So the principle that I use is to look at the language and try very, very hard not to use any words which are anachronistic. I found writing stuff in the 16th century easy in a way because I know Shakespeare very, very well. So I'm conversant with the vocabulary that Shakespeare used. And so if I've heard that word in a Shakespeare play, then I feel comfortable about writing it. And sometimes the syntax is slightly more roundabout than it would be in a modern Piece of dialogue, but essentially it feels the same. And to move into the 17th century, I did read a lot of peeps just to kind of get myself a little further along. For example, there's quite a lot of food mentioned in the play. I went to peeps for that sort of thing, the sort of thing that was being served, and just to get into that. But I don't know, I guess I hear their voices in my head. And for me, it becomes something that I'm kind of translating through that rather than just deciding exactly what every sentence is like. It's a kind of rhythm and a flow that feels right. And of course, they are East Anglian people. So, I mean, Richard and Susan in the play haven't got particularly broad East Anglian accents, but they have got the intonation of East Anglians, which
2: I think is really important for me as well. I love that the essential answer to that question was, well, you know, it's just years and years of immersing myself in Shakespeare and 17th century sources. But that's the truth of the matter. It's just time on task, as one great man I know used to say. It's just time spent absorbing it, which means then it can pour out of you.
3: Yes. And that's very much how I go about trying to gather all the information that I need to write the play. Obviously, I'm not a historian. I'm a historical playwright, and that's something very different. And so I'm researching a particular period in time and just trying to get my head around as many of the themes that are vitally important to that. So I collect information in pockets, like things like mothers and the death of children or magic and witchcraft, the kind of wider beliefs in the society and obviously the Puritan faith, that sort of thing, as well as the particular events that I'm writing about so that there's a wider context within which I can just sort of pepper the scenes and the dialogue with little references which anchor it in a reality.
2: You mentioned there the Puritan culture, and it is a theme, really, of the play. You're telling the story of East Anglia's godly community, and that's an area that was particularly inclined towards this version of the Christian faith. How did you go about characterising the culture of Puritanism?
3: Well, it goes back really to the 16th century and the story of the Ipswich martyrs. The play that I wrote about Alice Driver, who was a young woman who just pulled a plough for her dad in Grunsborough, but ended up, before she was 30, being burnt at the stake on the Corn Hill in Ipswich. And so I did a huge amount of research at that time into... That response, I guess, to the Reformation and the way Ipswich and our locality became a very strong Protestant stronghold. And so when Mary came back into power, it was a kind of reign of terror in terms of those people. But what amazed me more than anything really was that Alice Driver chose to die. She could have easily renounced what she was saying and sort of agreed with transubstantiation and then she would have been let off. And for me, I found that just Incredibly fascinating that somebody could be so passionate and fanatical, really, I guess, about their religious belief that they would go through that unspeakable death for it. And so I kind of got to know a sense of the 16th century Protestants. And it was fascinating for me to see how that had translated into the 17th century. It seems to have built in momentum, become more detailed, more of a dogma, I suppose. And finding out about them, particularly in Dedham here, there was a really big community of Puritan society leaders, really. There's a big church there. I went to visit it with the cast at the weekend, actually. And they had lecturers coming on Tuesdays. And then over a 1000 people would come together kind of outside the front of the church in the sort of market square. I think they had a market on a Tuesday. And then in the afternoon, everybody stood and listened to the lecturer. There's a famous guy called Rogers. There's a bust of him in Dedham Church, who was really adored, I think, and like a Puritan celebrity of the time that people used to come from miles around to hear him speak. He's slightly before the Witchfinder Decade. He died at the end of the 1630s. But I think very much that culture and the characters in the play were familiar with him and they would have gone to see him and other lecturers as well, giving this really detailed instructions about how you were to live and how you weren't to live and what was wrong and what was right. And it seemed to be escalating more and more. There's a bit in the play where they talk about, we're not allowed to throw corn at weddings. We're not allowed to have maypoles. And they're trying really hard to keep up with the latest thing that you're not allowed to do, or the latest thing that in modern speak maybe has been cancelled, the thing that isn't allowed anymore. So that was really fascinating for me to see how that faith how that stronghold of Puritanism had developed and really the atmosphere into which Matthew Hopkins enters and
2: which makes everything kind of ripe for this extraordinary turn of events. Would it be possible to ask what you think attracted people to Puritanism? Because what you've just described in terms of restrictions and what comes out in the play is shame, makes it feel to a modern listener and a modern audience as if, you know, this is not terribly appealing. But actually, in your area, in East Anglia, many people were really swept up in this culture. Why do you think?
3: I think it's a culture of fear. I think they were probably afraid not to be. Of course, people's Belief in God and in hell and in the devil was absolutely implicit. And I think this authoritarian religion told them that they didn't have a hope of being saved unless they played it by the rules. And I think that caught on, that fanaticism caught on, as it does in lots of areas of the world, even today. They're not. Attractive ways of living. But if it makes you believe that this gives you the chance of surviving in the afterlife, then I think people became completely locked into that. And their lives were so difficult. I mean, child mortality is a massive theme within the play. And I think the death of children and people looking for explanations and reasons in a world where there's no scientific diagnosis of, oh, I'm so sorry, your child has died and it was because of this reason. People are looking for reasons. And I think they were looking for that kind of, it's really strong patriarchy, isn't it? And they're looking for that kind of patriarchal lead and comfort in a way. Though I see that religion as being so unequal, this idea of the elect, I still find it really hard to get my head around that God's decided before you're even born whether or not you're going to be going to heaven. I find that really hard to understand. But I think, you know, sometimes in rehearsals we've been talking about, it's kind of like trying to be top of the class, trying to be the one who's getting it right, who's winning the right kind of points with God in order to be a person who goes to heaven. And then there's this idea, I think, about The babies, and Susan feels this in the play, her babies have died and she passionately wants to believe that they're with Jesus in heaven. And therefore she's got to be a really good godly person. Otherwise she won't be able to be reunited with them. And that becomes another fixation for this grieving mother, I think. I don't know how well that's answered the question about why they got so hooked on it, but I think it's addictive and I think it's infectious as well.
2: I think you're really onto something there with this sense of uncertainty as well. You know, there's so much uncertainty, poor weather that can destroy your harvest and leave people hungry, cattle that sickens, and of course, the baby's dying. And it seems to me that even though you, as you just said today, if your child died, you might be given a medical, a scientific reason for that. I don't suppose that that would actually do anything to go towards explaining. To a grieving parents, why their child has died. I don't think it actually answers that question of why did it happen to me? People ask that question all the time. And they're just in the 17th century faced with circumstances that are almost beyond imagining to us in that the extent of the suffering that they undergo in their natural lives means that perhaps they're just asking that question more and having a framework for understanding why it might be happening to them. And even actually, it might be comforting to be able to blame themselves for some reason. I mean, let's talk about perhaps the ways in which they did try to explain the rates of infant mortality at the time. What do you think is going on?
3: Well, I think it leaves the door wide open because if you feel that your baby has died because God is angry with you and because you're a sinner, then the big headline all the way across the society was, we are all sinners they said it all the time and it was kind of drummed into their heads. And if they feel that like it's my sin, and particularly for a woman, because there was such a misogynistic line running through Puritanism in terms of a fixation really with Eve as being the conduit for the devil into humanity's downfall. I think for that reason, If a woman is thinking, my baby died because of me, because I'm a sinner, because I'm inadequate, because God is angry with me, if you can make a jump from that to actually know God isn't angry with me at all, it wasn't God, it was the devil, that actually could be a comfort. And it's a really dark comfort, I know, but it might be easier for somebody to think, well, actually, it wasn't me. It isn't down to my inadequacy and my sin. It's actually about the devil.
2: Yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because at one level, if you think it's your sin, then you think you can do something about it, right? So if you're responsible, if you've got sort of grandiosity about your responsibility, then you can change things. But on the other hand, what we see is very much people shifting to externalizing the blame. And your character, Susan, says early in the play that talk of the devil killing cows and a child is foolish, superstitious gossip, but her mind is changed. And I suppose when we try and work out how people change their minds, what we've been talking about is part of it, that sense of trying to externalize the responsibility I suppose the question I'm asking you is the question of the play how do good people get to the point of doing terrible things.
3: Yeah, well it was really important for me that they weren't kind of gullible conspiracy theorists from the off. And I have to keep telling myself all the time when writing anything like this that it's modern. Everybody is modern, aren't they? Everyone thinks that now is modernity. And so for them the puritan faith is kind of cutting edge and modern and this is new thinking. And I think I wanted, of course, not to deny that those characters would believe implicitly in God and also in the devil, and they would believe in the possibility of the existence of witchcraft. They wouldn't have questioned that witchcraft was a thing, but I gave them a scepticism about the old ladies in the village and the way people gossip. And I thought they could easily look at these silly stories about, oh, my horse was bewitched or something, and look at them and think, that's just nonsense. You're just all being silly, because they're sensible, intelligent, sensitive people. And that was the place that I wanted them to be at the beginning of the story, I think, so that we can empathise with them, so that we could think, well, of course, they would look at that and they would think, oh, that's just ridiculous. But then as the play goes on, it's a kind of little drip feed into their psychology where they start to just kind of cave in a little bit to the possibility of witchcraft. And at the beginning of the play, Matthew is a young boy, as he was. He's a lot younger than a lot of people think, the Witchfinder General. And of course, he's kind of like a kid who's been on the internet too much and is getting really into conspiracy theories. And he's believes in witchcraft. He thinks he's heard witches across the marshes. He's very, very interested in it. And in a way, he kind of kicks back against Richard and Susan and says, yo, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on. But gradually, through different things that happen to them, okay, A couple of their cows die in slightly mysterious circumstances, quite near to a cottage where a woman who later becomes accused of witchcraft was living. There's also lots of tensions politically within the small community where they live. Richard Edwards has just inherited a lot of money and the farm, and he's a landlord for lots of people. So there's that traditional tenant-landlord tension there between them. But then other people are talking about livestock dying, as you mentioned, and his horse gets spooked on the middle bridge. It would be a polecat, I think they had polecats then. We've had fun looking at what the noises polecats made, which do sound kind of demonic and strange. And at the time they're saying, no, no, it's a polecat. But then in retrospect, when they start to fall for the witchcraft theory, they look back at things like the cows dying and the middle bridge incident and start to add everything together and fit it together into their new belief. But I think the big thing that works for them is when the clothiers in Dedham say that that they believe in witchcraft because the clothiers weren't sort of superstitious, uneducated people. They're people that Richard Edwards and Susan Edwards look up to and they were rich and sophisticated and kind of they're slightly in awe of them. And they're also very sober Puritan people. So when Susan Edwards hears from Martha Ailfounder Founder that she thinks her child was bewitched, I think that's a really big moment. And interestingly for Richard Edwards, It's when John Ale Founder, the man, says, actually, no, I think he was bewitched. And that's the thing that really kind of changes him. And in a moment, it's as if the scales have fallen from my eyes. And in a moment, they suddenly relook at everything that they've been experiencing in a completely different light. But it has to be, I think, a really gradual process in order to believe that somebody with a rational mind could become ensconced to this degree in something so awful.
0: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. get 30, 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.
2: One of the things that your play particularly brought home for me is the extent to which people's accusations of witches came from a place of pain. And because we're so quick to understandably sympathise with those accused of witchcraft, who I feel like I can say with some confidence are all innocent, that we actually rush perhaps to condemn those making the accusations. But your play explores the perspective of the accusers and brings a kind of necessary balance to thinking about what's going on with them as well.
3: Yes yeah I think so there's
2: so much pain
3: so much grief and so much of this searching for an explanation and I also think that being involved in this persecution for a decent person if you do follow through on that what do you then do with your life The aftermath of having been part of something so awful is also something that I kind of want to leave people with as well, that walking away from it wouldn't be easy and and the weight of guilt, I think. I work a lot with prisoners who've committed murders and serving life sentences, so I am very interested in the idea of a person who is living with a huge weight of guilt and has to get up every day and face that. And that, that's yet something that I've met with and talked about with those people on numerous occasions. And I think perhaps that feeds in to the story as well.
2: Yes. And I think that also comes out, guilt and shame are obviously different things, but I think that also comes out with Richard and Susan and the fact that so many children of theirs have died as infants because actually in part they're wrestling with questions of guilt and shame over that as well in this environment, aren't they? I also want to pick up on the point that you mentioned about the kind of power relations in a small community. We're here in Mistley in East Anglia, and you've mentioned that Richard Edwards is a landlord, and so there are those who depend on him but also resent him. One of the gripes that you mentioned is a kind of Puritan novelty, which is the removal of customary boons, the Christmas cheer, the winter alms. How far do you think that socioeconomic differences and the resentments they provoke must be considered when we think of witchcraft accusations? Hugely,
3: I think. Of course, it was such a difficult time and you've got the civil war within the equation as well. And I think societies often thought that those women, particularly single women, were perhaps going to be a burden on the rest of society and make things more difficult for people. Yes, I think there's a huge amount of prejudice and perhaps the resentment that those people, usually those women, felt towards their kind of betters, weren't they? They're better than you. The whole religion feels extremely hierarchical to me. And I think that the bitterness that they felt and when they expressed it, And you can imagine that they would express it if you're asking for arms or something and they're turned away at the door. And, you know, that thing about, oh, we heard them mumbling. Well, you know, you do mumble when somebody treats you really badly, I think, and you feel unequal and you feel unprovided for within a society. So I think it was a huge point of tension. And of course, there's a clear socioeconomic divide, isn't there, generally speaking, between the accused and the accusers.
2: Now, I understand that you were inspired to write this because of new evidence about Matthew Hopkins and his family tragedies. And here you give us a backstory to Matthew Hopkins. And again, this is where you're turning things on your head. Let's think about the perspective of this person who, in the end, does so much damage. But here we're kind of in the origin story. What do you think it's helpful to know of his background and formation?
3: Well, what I found really fascinating was the idea that he'd moved to Mistley when his mother married the vicar from Mistley. His father was the vicar of Great Wenham. It's not very far. We made the journey the other day, you know, sort of imagining going on horseback from one place to the other. But he'd lived there and died when he was 14. And then they moved when his mother remarried. And actually, Matthew Hopkins' father and the man that his mum later went on to marry were friends at Cambridge, which is quite interesting in itself, I think. She went from one vicar to another. So when Matthew moved to Mistley, he became part of the family, the Whittam family, which lived at the parsonage in Mistley. And I think that's a really fascinating fact. And then when you find that Susan was the daughter of Whittam, so is in effect his stepsister, and she was one of the women who made the accusation that her baby had been killed by the witchcraft, then it kind of ties everything in really tightly. You know, he's often seen, I think, as this figure who swoops in from the outside to persecute the witches and then off he goes again and of course he did become something like that when he started his tour as it were around East Anglia but in the beginning in the origin of it it was something that was happening to his family and of course in the play I've explored the fact that this relationship with Susan could be perhaps the first time he's had a positive relationship with a woman of any kind he had brothers his dad died we don't know what his mother was like we have theories in the rehearsal room about his mother not being a particularly loving person. But it's interesting, in the pamphlet, it's described that he was at the house of Richard and Susan Edwards late at night on the night when he then returned home and got spooked. His greyhound was spooked and he thought he saw this creature sitting on his strawberry bed. And it just got me thinking, you know, about the locality, about the close-knit community, about the Thorn Inn and about how much he was actually not just representing the ideology, which set the community against this idea of witchcraft, but also doing something for his family, doing something for his sister, and experiencing firsthand the grief and the fear and the terror that they were experiencing, which in our interpretation, I think gives him an impetus to be kind of like a saviour to people. and um, I don't think Matthew Hopkins comes across as a lovely guy or anything like that in the show, but I think what's been really important for me is to try to understand where he was coming from and how somebody like that could be created by the circumstances. And of course, there's lots of nature-nurture debate
2: about what makes him the person that he is. One thing you do very well in your plays, is you find that portion, that way into a story, and tell it in this very neat way, insofar as you've got four actors in your cast and you've got a confined story, but that one powerfully kind of catalyzes what will happen after. And you've already characterized Hopkins, you know, I suppose in our terms, we might think he's an equivalent of. QAnon conspiracist or an incel or something. He's told it's God's work that you are about. Do you think his motives are so pure though? I know that as time goes on, he will earn an awful lot of money from being a witchfinder general. I'm playing devil's advocate here, but what do you make of his motives?
3: I think the origins of his motives are religious, theological. I think he does definitely believe in witchcraft and the devil. I think he comes to believe fanatically in the presence of witches within his community. I think he then gets off on the power trip and it gives him a meaning in his life. He didn't go for being a vicar in the way his father was. He didn't go to the new world as his brother did He tries potentially perhaps to be a lawyer, we're not really sure, but he finds a niche, he finds a place where he can be important. And I think he, of course, as that escalates, starts to enjoy that more and more, I think, starts to enjoy the status and the power and to have a really strong inflated sense of his own importance in terms of being a soldier for Christ, as he calls himself. I think he has aspirations to be noticed by God and by Jesus as being a kind of saviour. I suppose, in a way, it could be seen as a little bit of a kind of messiah complex with him, that he feels that he's bringing something to the community. Of course, he did go on and earn money, and monetize it. But I think that wasn't the initial, it's not like he sat down with a business plan and thought, how can I make lots of money? I know I'll go and persecute these witches. I think that definitely came later. And I think with this addiction to gaining more and more status came a sense that earning money was his just desserts. I think because who could be doing anything more important than what he was doing? He was he was ridding the society that he was living in of witchcraft, and that means the devil. They talk about the devil himself being present in Mistly. What does he say? It's an apocalyptic fight for good, and I think that he really
2: thought that. That's my opinion, and that justifies techniques such as sleep deprivation, which are seen as a means to drive the truth out of suspects. We know they do almost the opposite, but I suppose we can see here actually a genuine belief that that's the case as well as a kind of grandiosity.
3: Yes, I think that's where the the whole, I mean, it was interesting in rehearsal yesterday, Vincent's playing Matthew Hopkins and he's obviously as an actor, you have to get behind your character and you have to empathise with them and try to really understand what they're doing. And we got to the point where he's interrogating Rebecca West in Colchester Castle and suddenly Vincent just stopped and said, no, I can't, I can't. I hate him. Um, He just realised that there was a point at which he couldn't empathise with him anymore. And obviously he's going to have to do that when he plays the character, but it just got to a point of unbearability. And hopefully that will happen when people are watching the play, that, you know, he's not a villain who enters, he's a boy and he grows into the man who carries out these unspeakable, awful, awful
2: things. Talking of Rebecca West, a couple of ideas relating to her that are really interesting. And one is that the familiars, these animals that we now know so much through kind of fairy tales, you know, the witch has a cat. I'm thinking of stories I read to my child. And it's a very curious and specifically English idea. It doesn't come up across the rest of Europe. And your play suggests that the familiars are kind of a terrible misunderstanding. How do you characterize them?
3: There's an incident in the play where Matthew says, oh, John Stern saw the imps. He doesn't say he saw the imps, but John Stern saw the imps. And I think, yes, the pets and kittens and Rebecca talks about playing with kittens. It's the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? To play with kittens. I and mean, she's at a prayer meeting with her mum and they're all much older than her. She's probably quite bored. You know, there's some kittens there. Great. I'll play with them. And of course, They even thought sometimes that insects were familiars, didn't they? And that's the easiest thing in the world to say, oh, there was a fly in there while I was interrogating this woman. That sort of thing. Yes, I think it is that. Matthew Hopkins explains that the devil can appear in all sorts of different forms. He just has to kind of condense air in weird ways. He's got these sort of real horrible cod scientific explanations for what the devil can do. And yeah, I think it is just a weird misunderstanding. But I guess it's something that they could universally apply because it's going to be very common for people to have pets of different kinds and animals of different kinds. He could use it when he went to a new place. Well, tell me about the pets. Tell me about the cats. Tell me about the kittens. And then that translates really Easily into imps. It's interesting about darkness as well, because there's that account of him, his dog getting spooked. And he, it's interesting, Richard still hangs on to rationality and says, well, Are you sure it wasn't a hair, brother? No, it's bigger than a hair. But things always look weird in the dark. And something that I'm often reminding the actors about is about not having electricity then and how different the dark and the night was to the day and how easy it is to see things in the shadows.
2: Yes, yes. It might be an experiment to just. Try, especially as the nights are drawing in, having an evening and morning just by candlelight. I mean, I've said this before on the podcast. I live in a village that doesn't have street lighting and it makes a real difference. (laughs) I mean, it means you can see the stars, which is incredible, but it also means that the streets don't feel entirely as safe as they would do if they were lit up. I mean, I don't feel like I'm in a particularly dangerous area, but who knows? You know, you don't know. That's the point. Back to Rebecca, though, I wanted to ask you one more question about her, which was this awfulness, the utter awfulness that she indicts her mother. And we see this also in the Pendle witch trials, a sort of repeated phenomenon actually in the witchcraft accusations that children will accuse their relatives. What do you think creates the mental space in which that can happen?
3: I suppose they targeted her because they saw that she was young and vulnerable. And I think with these things like sleep deprivation and also just imprisoning her in that awful dungeon in Colchester Castle for that length of time. I think that she learns from Hopkins. She becomes convinced, I think, by Hopkins that they were worshipping the devil and that she has been part of something really terrible. And she's terrified. Something that really interests me is how her mother would have felt about this as something we've discussed a bit. Because as a mother, I think if you thought you could save your daughter, you would say, yeah, tell them I was a witch. You'd be completely behind that. I mean, it would be the most awful thing to do. And then she has to bear the burden of the guilt of indicting her mother. But I often think that I can imagine Anne West saying, no, 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 you do that because at least you will live and that will make things better for me. There's no evidence for that really, but that's just a kind of personal theory that I have that might have been a voice in Rebecca's head to think that actually that's what my mother would have wanted. But it's a dreadful thing. And Hopkins is quite happy to manipulate her into that betrayal and then just leave her.
2: And I think it's absolutely legitimate to imagine ourselves into those gaps because we're never going to have evidence of the relationship between Anne and Rebecca West and what actually transpired. Finally, then, this play marks the start of the story of Hopkins' witch finding. It's the catalyst, as it were, to it. How do you think that it can change our understanding or our imagining about this period and this particular episode of The Witchfinder General?
3: Well, what I want it to do, what I would really like it to do is to make people empathize with it as something that happened in reality to people like us, rather than seeing these kind of stereotypical views of both witches and witchcraft, and also of the witch finder a general, this kind of stock baddie who comes in and deals with it. I and mean, it's interesting about Salem isn't it in America because I haven't been there but I've heard that there are lots of gift shops with little witches in them and all sorts of things like that and that in a way is kind of very dehumanizing I think to the story and we don't have that here but we haven't really I don't think explored those stories or owned them and so for me I think it's important and what I would like people to take from it is the fact that we all could potentially have been part of that community and who's to say what we would have fallen for, what we would have believed and the terrible things that we could have done in the name of good against evil.
2: Well, if that hasn't whetted your appetite to go and see this play, I don't know what would. You need to rush though to the Avenue Theatre in Ipswich. The play closes on the 11th of November and it is called The Ungodly. Joanna Carrick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Susanna. It's been wonderful. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you. So do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com. Or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars, and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.